Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that in this moment you would speak, oh Lord, through your word, by your spirit, impress upon us your truth, your will, and your calling upon our lives, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. We'll be back in the Gospel of Matthew this morning and looking at Matthew chapter 9, the the end of chapter 9 this morning. If you want to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 9. As you turn, I would remind you, those of you who have been with us for some time as we study through Matthew, that in chapter 4, verse 23, just before Jesus sits down to deliver the Sermon on the Mount, We read that Jesus went throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. When we covered this text earlier, what I share with you and point out to you is that these were the habits of Christ, that he preached, he taught, and he healed. He was constantly doing those three things in his ministry. So as he concluded that, as he was doing that, he comes to a point, the crowd had gathered, and he sits down on the mount, and he delivers the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. We come out of 5 through 7, you know we've been going through 8 through 9, where uh, chapters 8 and 9 filled with miracles of various kinds of the Lord. And now in verse 35 of chapter 9, we will read, Jesus went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. You see, identical statement from chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus continues his ministry faithfully doing what he is sent to do and continuing to carry out his ministry to the people of God. What we have today in verses 35 through 38 is really a transitional paragraph between all of the miraculous works of Jesus in chapters 8 and 9 into chapter 10 where he he will send the disciples out to the nearby villages to speak and to the people of God. And so as we look at this transitional paragraph today, let's hear the word of the Lord beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In verse 35, we see immediately two important words. Jesus went. Jesus went. We are not called to do anything that Christ has not already done. At the conclusion of John's gospel in chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Christ is calling us to do what he has been doing, what he has done. He is always the foundation and the precedent for living a faithful and obedient Christian life. 
So Christ, as he walked in perfect obedience and submission to the Father, calls us to therefore do the same. The, the reason we're called to live holy lives in 1 Peter 1 is because God is holy, because he is holy. In 1 Peter 3.18, we're given the example and the reminder from Peter that, that Christ suffered for righteousness' sake. And you might remember that in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 10, one of the marks of the believer is the one who is blessed because he is persecuted for righteousness' sake. Christ is always the foundation. He's always the precedent for what we are called to do. And so he sends us out. In chapter 10, he's going to send out the disciples. He will commission and send them to proclaim the gospel. He's commissioning them and sending them to do what he's been doing in chapters 8 through 9, even all the way back before the Sermon on the Mount when he started his ministry. And ultimately, we know, reading ahead and knowing ahead, many of you in here know that in Matthew 28, 19, he then is going to commission all of his followers to go and make disciples. We all are called to go. And so, as we look at this text today, it is helpful to have somewhat of a, a big picture view of the sending of Christ, the commissioning of Christ of his disciples, and the sending out of all of his disciples unto the nations. It speaks personally to all who claim to be followers of Christ. What I want to kind of point out to you right now is, is this, where was Jesus going? What was his habit in, in, in chapter 4 and here in chapter 9? Where was he going? He was going around Galilee. In, in verse 23 of chapter 4, it says he went throughout all of Galilee. Now, in chapter 9, he is going throughout the, the cities and villages surrounding Capernaum. It's in the northern side of Israel, northern part of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. And he's going around all these towns, all these villages, and he is teaching and preaching and proclaiming. Now, where does he go when he begins to teach? What does the text say there? Where does he teach at? teaching in their synagogues, right? He's going into the synagogues. He's going among the people of Israel, the, the towns and villages in Galilee. Now, why is this important? The importance is the fact that he is going and he's preaching, he's teaching, he's ministering in the context of the people of God. So I want you to have that in the back of your mind. What he is doing in this moment is in the context of God's people, the Israelites, and we see, when we get into verse 36, we see the compassion of Christ and we see the problem of the people. The compassion of Christ, the problem of the people. So Jesus goes through the cities and the villages and he saw the crowds. And he sees them and he sees that they are those who are hurting. He sees that they're those who are helpless, who are lost, who have been deceived, who are even hopeless. And what we can't miss is this is that we come out of all the miracles in chapters 8 and 9. Just in your, in your head, think about where we've been as we've gone through chapters 8 and 9. Think about all the miracles, the healing of the blind, the healing of the lame, the raising of the dead. Think about the miracles of, of calming the sea to, to still the fears of the disciples. All of these incredible miracles that Jesus does in chapters 8 and 9. But then we come here, we come to this passage, and it says that when he saw the crowds, he was moved to compassion. He's moved to compassion, not because of their physical challenges, but because of their spiritual condition. 
Their spiritual condition is what moved him to compassion. It says when he saw them, he has compassion for them. This is a, a deep sense of pity. It's a strong sense of pity. It's, it would be the, in our common vernacular that is his heart went out to them. He's deeply moved within. And Matthew talks about this word, uses this word to describe Jesus' response to ministry four times. And when it's used, most often it's used to describe the compassion he sees for the people's physical needs, sometimes spiritual need. In Matthew 14, 14, we read about the feeding of the 5,000, and it was the compassion of Christ that led him to feed them and to heal them. His compassion drove him to bring healing to them, and then as they stayed and remained, they needed food, and he fed them. He met their physical needs. In Matthew 15, 32, the word is used when he's feeding the 4,000. And he sees them. He, again, he has compassion on them. He's moved to this great, deep, strong sense of pity. And so he feeds the 4,000. In Matthew 20, verse 34, two blind men, once again, come to Jesus. And he heals them. Why does he heal them? Because he has compassion on their physical ailments. But here... Here in verse 36 to 38 of chapter 9, Matthew explicitly makes clear that Jesus had compassion on them. Why? Because he saw the spiritual condition of the people. It wasn't all their ailments. It wasn't the, any, any physical condition they found themselves in. But when Jesus saw and looked and saw the state they were in spiritually, it moved him deeply to compassion. Now we would be wise to stop here for a moment and just consider how easy it is for us to be moved to compassion when we see someone's physical problems. We see those, and I'll never forget, I don't know, this, this image just stands out in my mind today as maybe the first time that, I, that maybe news, uh, the news broadcast was this, was this um, clear and maybe perhaps you could say even graphic was when Hurricane Katrina came through. And the, the footage of the news just showed the, how, how the coast had been ravaged and showed the people who had lost their homes, people who had lost everything, people wailing and weeping because they had lost loved ones. And all this on the news. I remember maybe for the first time in a long time, after maybe since 9-11, just being moved to tears by seeing that. And the response was, let's go help them. You, you see... Perhaps one stranded on the side of the road, or you hear of one battling through a, a significant illness. You hear of one who's home burnt, or a loved one who is tragically killed in a car accident. And you're moved to compassion. You're moved to compassion. This is good. This is right. We want to help them. We hurt for them. Our, our heart goes out to them. We have pity for them, and rightly so. That's a good response. We should have compassion on those people. But the question we have to ask is this, is when was the last time that I had that same sense of compassion because I looked and saw the spiritual state of a person around me? When was the, the last time that I was stirred deep within myself because of the spiritual condition of another person? Is it just physical conditions that cause me to respond that way? Or do I respond that way when I see someone hurting because of where they are spiritually? Are we moved to compassion when we see someone living under the lie that, that being a good person will work out okay in the end? That that might indeed get them to heaven? 
Are we moved to compassion when we look and we see a brother or sister living in sin? They've bought the deceit of sin. They've been deceived and they're living under that deceit of sin. Are we moved to compassion when they're so gripped by that sin that they've bought the lie that they can't come back into the people of God? Are we moved to compassion when we see someone who thinks life is accidental and purposeless? It's meaningless. It's just the result of nature's course. Are we moved to compassion when someone has been deceived by false teachers? Or do we just shake our head and say, I can't believe you would listen to that? Are we moved to compassion that they're living under a lie and their soul is at stake? Are we moved to compassion when we see a world that embraces sexuality as their identity rather than understanding the truth that they were made in the image of God and their identity is in God and being an image bearer of God in Christ alone that they were fearfully, wonderfully made do those things move us to compassion does it stir deep within us and cause us to long to help them what was it what was the spiritual condition here that moved jesus to such compassion look at your text what was their spiritual state what what caused him to be so moved it was because They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This statement should never, never be said of God's people. It should never be said of God's people. And so when it is, when he sees that, it moves him deeply. It moves him deeply because the people who should have been shepherded were not. A people who should know the truth as the people of God, they didn't know the truth. A people should, who should be led to wholly trust in the Lord. Where instead of trusting the Lord, they're, they're led to trust the traditions of men. A people who should not have been harassed and helpless, they were. And in fact, they were being harassed by religious legalism that was casting them down without hope. They were harassed and helpless or harassed and cast down. It can be translated, they were cast down because they had no hope. They couldn't meet the standards. They knew they couldn't. Since they were harassed by religious legalism, he looks and he sees a people who, in essence, are being taken advantage of by wolves instead of being cared for, protected, and led by shepherds. Listen, this is a condition that's all too relevant in our day. It's all too clear and all too relevant in our day. In the United States where so many live here and so many would gather in churches and confess to be Christians, yet they gather and they have no one truly shepherding them. They have no one who's truly caring for their souls. They're buying lies. They're under religious legalism rather than the hope of the gospel. This must not be. This must not be. It should never be the case that you would come and you would gather in this place as one's harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, this speaks weightily, powerfully, heavily upon myself and Mike and Ricky and Matt and Scott. As your pastors, we have a responsibility to care for you, provide for you, lead you, feed you. We have that responsibility. We must fulfill that responsibility. Why is this so moving to the Lord? Because it should never be said of God's people. It should never be said of God's people. Because this is an important thing in the eyes of God Almighty. A very important thing. 
in, in Numbers. You don't have to turn here. I want, to, I want to take you to a few Old Testament texts. I want you to see the importance of God's people having shepherds who care for their souls. So in Numbers chapter 27, verse 15 and 17, we have this moment where, where Moses prays to God and he, he asks God for a new leader. Listen to what he prays. He says, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Do you know how God answers that prayer? Here's Joshua. Here's Joshua. He appoints Joshua as Moses' successor, and he comes. You see, the people of God are to have shepherds who lead them, who lead them out, who bring them in, who care for them, who feed them. They're to have those who would understand and point to them to say that we are shepherds, we're caring for you, and we're directing you and leading you and pointing you to the good shepherd, the Lord who is our shepherd. Psalm 23, you have David writing that beautiful psalm that the Lord is my shepherd. He is our great and mighty shepherd. That's the precedent. But we... Fast forward down through the Old Testament, we come to the prophets. We know the rebellion of the people. And God is going to bring Babylon to punish the people. And so Micah comes along in the 8th century and he prophesies of God's coming judgment through the Babylonians. But in the midst of his prophecy that Babylon would come and punish God's people for their rebellion and their disobedience, in the midst of that, there's this beautiful message of hope. And you're familiar with this message of hope. This is in Micah chapter 5. Starting at the, the beginning, but Micah 5 verse 2 says this. Here, you're going you're gonna to recognize this. Most of you will recognize this. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, that's, that one got me, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. It's a messianic prophecy that the Christ, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And he goes on to describe this Messiah. And in verse 4, he says this, He shall stand, and guess what he's going to do? He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So God says, listen, the Babylonians are going to come and they are going to punish you by my hand. I am sovereign over the nations. I'm sending this ungodly nation, this pagan nation to punish you. But you need to know that I will send one from the little town of Bethlehem. I will send one and he will be strong and he will be mighty and he will shepherd you. He will shepherd you and you shall dwell secure and he shall be your peace. So that's before the Babylonian captivity. Well, the people indeed are taken by Babylon. They're sent into exile among the Babylonians. And so then we come to Ezekiel, who is prophesying during the exile. He's speaking to God's people during the exile, while they're exiled. And in Ezekiel 34, this is what we read. The word of the Lord came to me, says Ezekiel, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should you not shepherd, should, should not shepherds feed the sheep? 
you eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones. But you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep, says God, my sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search and seek for them. God pronounces judgment on the priests, the high priests, who were supposed to shepherd the people, but were not. Instead, they were taking advantage of them. They were not protecting them. The thing that they should be doing for the sheep, they were just doing for themselves. And he pronounces judgment on them. So then the people come out of exile and we come to Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah, after the exile, speaks in, in Zechariah chapter 9. And he, he says again, this is one that will probably sound familiar to you. You hear this around Christmas time, the triumphal entry. You remember Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he comes in riding on a donkey and so we read in chapter 9 of Zechariah that he says rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout aloud O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey this one would bring salvation right he would bring salvation this one who would enter in on the back of a donkey and he says in chapter 10 verse 2 This is the problem. This is why the Messiah is coming. This is why judgment has been pronounced all the way through and coming up to this point where they have come back from exile. And Zechariah says in verse 2 of chapter 10, he says, For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. The people were looking to others. They were looking to those who were not of the Lord. They weren't looking to the word of the Lord. They weren't looking to the word that the prophets spoke to them. They were not looking to God, but instead they were looking to household gods. They were looking to diviners diviners that tell false dreams. They give empty consolation. And then he says this, Therefore, because they're doing this, they've been led to do this. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They're afflicted for a lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. You see what's going on here? The people of God who were to have a shepherd have none. Perhaps even worse, the ones they're supposed to have are actually taking advantage of them. And the word of the Lord says that My anger is hot against the shepherds. And we think back to Micah, and the people have to be thinking, God, did you forget? You said you're going to raise up one. You're going to send a Messiah, and he's going to be strong. He's going to have salvation. And he's going to shepherd in his strength. Do you see why this so moved Jesus? It moved Jesus so, it brought him to such pity, to have such deep compassion, because when Jesus looks and he stands and he looks out and he sees the people and he says, these are like sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed 
and helpless. And when Jesus stands there, he stands there as the shepherd who will shepherd his people in strength, who will care for them. He stands as the one who is called the good shepherd. Do you remember John 10? Do you remember Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. It is me. I am here. I will shepherd my sheep. Listen to John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus, Jesus says, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, the man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to him. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand is not a shepherd. Who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and he flees. The wolf snatch, snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep. They're not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. No one. But I lay it down of my own accord, and I have the authority to take it up again. The people of God were harassed and helpless by a bunch of no good shepherds. And the good shepherd comes upon him and sees it. And he's moved deeply, deeply to compassion. Deeply to compassion. Because he is a good shepherd. He was the true and better Joshua. He was the true and better David. He was the true and better high priest. He was the true and better, the good shepherd. The, the good shepherd who knows his sheep so well that he calls you by name. He doesn't say, hey, you. He says, hey, Chris. He calls his sheep by name. He's the good shepherd who goes before his sheep to protect them. He's this good shepherd who brings his sheep back in. 
He's the good shepherd who knows his sheep's needs, their weaknesses, their fears. He's the good shepherd who leads his sheep to still waters. He's the good shepherd who leads them in paths of righteousness. He is the good shepherd whose very presence casts out fear from all of his sheep. He's the good shepherd whose rod and staff comfort his sheep. He is the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. He is the good shepherd. And so what is the response then? I think this is really interesting. What's the response then of the good shepherd? He looks, he sees the state, he sees the condition of the people harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, knowing, knowing this should never be said of God's people. What does he do? What does he do? Verse 37. The response of Jesus is a call to prayer. A call to prayer. It's not a call to just pray. It's a call to pray. He says, he then said to his disciples, he brings his disciples in, he he looks, he's moved to compassion, he's moved to pity, his heart goes out and he, he says, guys, come here. Come here. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. He doesn't just sit back and lament over the state of the people, but he calls them in and says, let's pray. Let's pray to the Lord of the harvest. Look, the harvest is plentiful. Just look and see, behold, in front of you. Pray. There's an important progression. We're going to see this week and next week, kind of a part one, part two of of Matthew 9 up through verse 38. And the next week we'll look at Matthew 10, verse 1 to 15. And there's an important progression I want you to go ahead and see and have in the back of your mind. And the progression is this, that in 9.38 he says, pray earnestly. He calls them to pray. But then in chapter 10, verse 1, what does he say? It says that he called to him his 12 disciples. And if you skip down to verse 5 of chapter 10, it says, then Jesus sent them out. There is prayer, calling, and sending. That's an important progression to see that the Lord of the harvest, the good shepherd would come and he would say, let's pray, come and let's pray to the Lord of the harvest. And then he gathers his disciples, he calls them, he sends them out. We're going to look at the calling and sending more next week. Right now we want to concentrate on the praying, the call to prayer. At the end of the day, my desire, my longing is that we would be a church that earnestly prays for God to send workers That we would be a church that as we earnestly pray, that we would pray being sensitive to the general call and the particular call of the Lord upon our lives. And that we would be a church that is ready to go. Whatever that means, we're just ready to go. That we would pray earnestly. We would listen and be sensitive to the Lord's calling and we would be ready to go. So let's look at the call to prayer now. Let's look at this call from the Lord. First, notice in verse 37 the status of the harvest. What's the status of the harvest? It's plentiful. It's plentiful, but what? It's lacking workers. The workers are few. Listen, you need to see here first that Jesus makes a very certain declaration. The harvest is plentiful. It is plentiful. He's not hoping for a good harvest. It's plentiful. He's not questioning how the season's going to unfold. He's not going, well, golly, I hope everything is good. I hope we get enough rain. I hope everything works out just right so the harvest is good. No, he says the harvest is plentiful. There's certainty there. It is a state of reality. It is plentiful. 
I mean, it's, it's the, the understanding, the reality that we have glimpses in Scripture, that God gives us glimpses and says, listen, the harvest is plentiful. You want to know how we know the harvest is plentiful? Well, Revelation 7, 9 through 10 is a good reminder. Do you remember that text where John is given a glimpse into heaven? And it says, as I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. You know what they're saying? They're saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John's given this glimpse. How, how plentiful is the harvest? It's so plentiful that people from every nation, tribe, and language will be gathered around the throne of God, exalting his name and praising his name. Why? Because he saved them. That's how plentiful the harvest is. The certainty, here's the certainty. You want to hear the certainty of Christ in John 6, 37? He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. All of them. Anybody that God says, they are yours. They will come to me. That's certainty right there. The harvest is plentiful. All who the Father gives to me will come to me. And he continues in that verse. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. So whoever comes and calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He will never cast them out. So as we pray, we do so knowing the certainty of a harvest that is plentiful. We do so with the confidence that the good shepherd has sheep and he is calling them and they know his name, he said in John 10. They hear his voice. We pray with the certainty. God does not send us out on a vain task to reap what has not already been sown. He sends us out with certainty that faithful saints before us have gone in the power of the Holy Spirit, and the harvest is plentiful. It's ready. The harvest is plentiful. He says a similar thing in John 4, verse 34 to 38. Jesus has, again, this, this idea of the harvest and sending out workers, and, and there he says, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's telling the disciples again there, open your eyes. Just look. The fields are white for harvest. See it. It's right there in front of you. It's ready. It's ready. The people of God have confidence in God as we do the work of God. We need to know that. As you go out and you share the gospel and you do evangelism, and maybe you go to the ends of the earth for the purpose of the gospel, you need to go, know that you go with confidence in God, because we're doing the work of God, who said the harvest is plentiful. It's plentiful. It's, this is not something that's strange to our mind, is it? I mean, we live in Kentucky. You drive around, and what do you see right now? You see fields of grain, fields of soybean. Brady and I drove down to Huntsville, Alabama. And for four hours, we drove through fields on back roads to get there. And all these fields are ripe for harvest. We see them. And the picture that Jesus has given us here is, is one where we look out and we see thousands of acres of fields. They're ripe for harvest. They're, they're ready to be harvested. All the work has been done. The harvest is there. And it's the picture of the farmer who has done all that work. He's made the preparations. He's sown the field. He's cared for the field. The harvest is ready, but... There's few to help. There's few to help. And the farmer doesn't just walk back in and sit down on his couch 
well, I guess we're not going to be able to bring in the harvest. He doesn't just lament and go, well, no. No. He gathers workers. He gathers laborers in earnest. That's why in verse 38 it says, Therefore, pray earnestly. Therefore, pray earnestly. Pray earnestly is just one word in the Greek, but the way it's written, it conveys this sense of urgency, this begging, pleading of the Lord, begging, would you please send workers? It's the, the idea of the farmer who sees the harvest as plentiful, and he doesn't just go, oh, goodness, I can't believe we don't have enough workers, but he gets on the phone and he calls his, his family, he calls his friends, he calls everyone he knows, he says, come out and work. Well, I've never done that. I don't know how to do it. It's okay. I just need your help. Come on. I'll teach you. Come on. I need laborers. I cannot do this alone. Come and work with me. The harvest is plentiful. We've got to bring in the harvest. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. Laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. We pray earnestly to God whose harvest it is, who rules over the harvest, who owns it, who possesses it, who's brought it to the point that it is ready. The fullness of time. Remember Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. The time is at hand. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Pray earnestly. Beg of the Lord that he would send out workers. Is this my posture? Is this your posture? That's where the Lord's worked in my life this week. Todd, is, is that really your posture? Do you really... Pray earnestly for this? Is that our posture as a church? Are we begging the Lord? Are we earnestly pleading with the Lord, God, send out workers? Do we long for the lost to be saved? Do we really have this longing this, that we would just beg the Lord, God, save them? We want to see people saved. Or is it just lip service? We just have some pretty graphics out in the foyer. Oh, they look really nice. We have a really cool Great Commission Resource Center. Oh, that's just nice. Look at that. Look how pretty it is. Look at those nice books over there. Oh, you guys went on a mission trip. That's so nice. Or do we long, long for the lost to be saved? Do we long or we move to compassion, to, to pity? Does our heart go out to them when we see them deceived by sin? J.C. Ryle commenting on this in the plea to earnest prayer, he says this, he says, The man who does not feel for the souls of unconverted persons can surely not have the mind of Christ that Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 2.16. How can we have the mind of the good shepherd and care little about the lost sheep? What is this prayer for? 
Is it for God to pick up a divine sickle, swinging it across the field, bringing in the harvest of one swoop? He could certainly do that. But that's not what the prayer is. Jesus instructs him, or us, to pray that he would send out laborers. That he would send out workers. You and I are the answer to the prayer that we pray. We pray this prayer fully knowing that we may indeed be the answer to the very prayer that we pray. God send out laborers. We'll talk more about this next week. Some are called to go. All are called to pray. Some of you in here physically can't go. Some can. But everyone here, everyone who is a shut-in watching this on Facebook can pray with earnest, begging God to send out laborers in the harvest. In a moment, when we conclude, I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to join me throughout the sanctuary and kneel in prayer to our God. Kneeling doesn't make you more special. But there is something tangible about submitting before the Lord. And I want to ask you if you're able to kneel. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe that's up here in the front. Maybe it's in the aisles. And I'm going to ask you to pray earnestly starting today. And we're going to devote a week of this earnest prayer to the Lord that He would send out laborers into the harvest field. But real quick before we do that, I want to be real clear about what this prayer means for me and for you. See, we pray, first of all, as I would remind you, knowing that the prayer is for God to send out laborers. And as we'll see next week, that may, be, may very well be you. It may very well be me. That God would send laborers, and he says, okay, go. What does this prayer mean? It means, first of all, praying with a willingness that you would be a laborer. That you would pray this prayer willing to go. It means praying this prayer with a blank check, ready to, be get, ready to give whatever needs to be given for the sake of the call of God. No strings attached, no price too great, no difficulty too hard. It's just a blank check to say, God, I'll do whatever you call me to do. I'm going to do it. it. It means having a willingness to make sacrifices as individuals and families. That if God says, as you pray, I'm answering your prayer and I'm going to send you and your family out, it would mean perhaps being willing to give up conveniences, plans, and comfort if God so calls. It's a willingness to sacrifice my agenda in submission to God's plan. 
It's a willingness to parents have your child leave and live perhaps on the other side of the world for the cause of Christ. Because you're so gripped with a willingness and a desire for God to send out workers into the harvest field. God, send them. And if it's my kids, so be it. Send them and let me release them into your care. And let me provide the prayer support and the encouragement through tears. Go, go, go. It could mean willingness to sacrifice the church. A willingness to send our best to send our most involved members wherever God leads. It's a willingness as a church to hurt over the loss of a family in our local body so that the kingdom might gain. It's a willingness to send out those into the harvest field. It's a willingness to do hard things and go to hard places because the harvest field is not a country club. It may be difficult. It may be costly. It will be hard. It will be work, but it will be worth it. It's the harvest field, and it is plentiful, and laborers are needed. Let's pray earnestly, earnestly begging of the Lord to send out workers into his harvest field. So I ask today, will you join me? Not in a little prayer to end a sermon. Will you join me and just set aside a minimum of a week from now until next Sunday at minimum. And, and if, if you would love it or you would be willing from here on out to pray earnestly to the Lord at the harvest to send out laborers, would you join me in that? Our instrumentalists are going to come up and they're just going to play. As they do, I just want to invite you in this moment to join me in prayer. If that's at your seat, then do it at your seat. If that's here in the front, come and join me. If it's in the aisle, kneel down. I invite you to come and let's pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest in this moment. And I'll close this afterwards. Let's pray together.